I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we wade through bitterness and despair to find the spark of life. I'm Aaron Bishop, here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey guys. And today we are in Job chapters 6 and 7. So last week we read the first friend's advice. And as we discovered, it wasn't all that helpful, was it? It was the prosperity gospel. It was an attempt at help, but truly not. Yeah, he led from a place of theology. And when dealing with a person who is going through loss, leading from a place of theology isn't going to help. They're not going to be able to listen. They're no. not going to be able to hear it. No, high-minded ideas, esoteric ideas, simply saying, well, this is what the Bible says, really doesn't meet a person where they're at. It doesn't engage with the actual tragedy. Yeah, it doesn't even validate their feelings. Right. Hey, what you're going through is awful, and I'm really sorry. And one of the things that he really did last week was blame Job and mm -hmm. say, this is all your fault. Right. And, and, and sit very high and mighty and righteous and pristine on on a mountain away from him. Right. There was a bit of victim blaming going on in those last two chapters. And that is the last thing you should try to do when dealing with a person who's struggling. Well, this week, Job responds. And when he responds, it's kind of hard in the beginning to tell who he's responding to. Is yeah. he responding to Eliphaz? Is he responding to God? What exactly is he doing? I think he kind of switches back and forth, quite frankly. I, I think that at some points he's talking to Eliphaz, and at other points he's talking to God, and he's kind of going back and forth between the two. There's that possibility. Um, it, it could be that he's just kind of addressing Eliphaz's points before God. Kind of like, hey, God, he brought this up. Is he right? You know, that, that sort of idea. Is, is there something wrong in me? Is there something that I have done? And I think we catch a glimpse this week that what Eliphaz says the the way that he approaches it is kind of Job's own thoughts on how God works. Now we mm -hmm. we catch a glimpse of that this week that that Job and Eliphaz they're kind of on the same page about how God works, and Job is kind of realizing he's he's recognizing that his own theology falls short. He absolutely sees that if he is righteous, there would be no reason for this particular life circumstance. So the fact that he is righteous and he's in it proves that 
there's something else going on and he doesn't know what to do with that. Right. This place that he's in, it kind of leads him to some bitterness and some despair. Well, I think that if you have grown up with this, if I do good, good things happen mentality and you've done good and bad things happen, it's going to throw you completely for a loop and you're going to have a major crisis of faith. You're going to have a major foundation shaking paradigm shift and you've got to come to terms with who God really is. And I think that's pretty much the entire process of Job. Yeah, yeah, it is it is Job struggling to deal with his grief and his trauma, but also trying struggling with God. In a way, this is the process of wrestling with God. And that's what Israel means, uh, Yesharel. It means to wrestle with God. We see that when Jacob is named Israel uh, back in Genesis, it's because he wrestled with God that he's given that name. And that is that is the task of the people of God, is to wrestle with God. Yeah. Uh, Paul says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And it's, it is that. It right. is very much a fearful, trembling, wrestling, deep, guttural ache. Yeah. So let's go ahead and let's read these chapters. Then let's really dig into what it is that Job has to say in these chapters. Because there is some really profound truths here and some echoes of a true and utter despair, uh, just the things that people go through and the ways that it, Job just puts it into this these beautiful words that really kind of makes them hit home. So let's read Job chapters 6 and 7. Job chapters 6 and 7. Job responded and said, If only my grief could be weighed and my calamity placed on the scales, for it outweighs the sands of the sea. That is why my words have been rash. For the arrows of Shaddai are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors line up against me. Does a wild donkey bray over fresh grass or an ox bellow over his fodder? Is something bland eaten without salt? Is there taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are like sickening food to me. Oh, that my request would be realized, that God would grant my hope that God would be willing to crush me, to release his hand and cut me off. Then I would still be comforted, even rejoice in spite of unrelenting pain, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should hope? What is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of rock? Is my flesh bronze? Is there no help within me? Has not success been banished from me? A despairing person should have the kindness of his friend, even if he forsakes the fear of Shaddai. My brothers have acted deceptively as a seasonal stream, as a torrential stream that overflows, when darkened by thawing ice and obscured by snow. But when they are scorched, they dry up, and in the heat they vanish from their place. Caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Tema look intently. The travelers of Sheba hoped for them. They were distressed because they had been confident. They came so far and were disappointed. Indeed, now you have become nothing. You see a terror and you are afraid. 
Have I ever said, give to me, or pay a bribe for me from your wealth, or save me from the enemy's hand, or redeem me from a ruthless hand? Teach me and I will be silent. Explain to me how I have been wrong. Honest words are painful, but what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to correct my words and treat the words of a despairing man as wind? Would you cast lots for an orphan or barter over your friend? Now be so kind as to look at me. I will not lie to your face. Relent, but do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my righteousness is in it. Is injustice on my tongue? Can my palate not discern evil? Does not man have hard labor on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired laborer? Like a slave longing for the shadow or a hired man waiting for his pay. So I have inherited months of futility and nights of distress have been appointed to me. When I lay down, I say, when will I rise? The night drags on and I toss until the day dawns. My flesh is clothed with maggots and clods of dirt. My skin is broken and festering. My days fly faster than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. Remember, my life is but a breath. My eyes will not see goodness again. My eyes that, the eye that sees me now will see me no more. Your eyes will be on me, but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so one descending into Sheol does not come up. He will never return to his house. His place does not know him. So I will not keep silent. I will speak in the distress of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of soul. Am I a sea or a monster of the deep that you have set a watch over me? When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul prefers strangulation and my bones death. I despise it. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a vapor. What is mankind that you magnify him, that you set your heart on him, that you visit him every morning and test him in every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie in the dust and you will search for me, but I will be gone. Well, you really just feel Job's utter despair in those words. You do. And, and yet, at the same time, it is so eloquently spoken. So if you have a Bible that kind of breaks it up and that lines it up as if it's poetry, you'll recognize that this chapter is broken up into stanzas. Uh, and these these stanzas, they each have their own focus. The the different stanzas that Job kind of goes through, they, they have their own point that Job is trying to make. And each one is rather profound. And I think we could even, if we thought about it, we could kind of give a name to each stanza or, or a... Uh, Theme, a maybe? theme, yeah, we could pick out the theme of each stanza. Mm -hmm. So the first stanza is verses one through seven. And, and he is mm -hmm. talking about just how he's kind of lost his love of life. Yeah, it's completely, there's no taste left. There's no color left in the world. There's no taste. There's no. 
right. anything. It, it's like he's experiencing poison in, inside, or like he's been shot with arrows and he's just dead inside. Uh, he, he's at that place of despair where there's nothing. Nothing looks good. Nothing tastes good. You're going through the motions just because you kind of go through the motions. It's just what you do. And for people who go through great loss, this is this is a very significant part of grief. It's part of the dis- depression part of the grief cycle. It brings to mind Frodo talking mm. to Sam right near the end of his journey and him saying, I can't remember the taste the, of strawberries. The taste of strawberries. I can't remember the cream. sound of trees. Right. Everything's darkness. I'm alone in the dark. Another good uh, effort to kind of grab that idea. But Job, he's, we've talked about it before. He is really dealing with some despair, just the depths and depths of despair. And Eliphaz's words haven't changed that in any way. No, they've only added to it and in a futility sort of way. Like, of course he's going to say these things, because why not? Let's just, let's just keep going. Whatever. I suppose. But it reveals just how unhelpful approaching grief and approaching trauma from a purely esoteric theological standpoint is. For a person who's going through it, even if they're a believer, it really doesn't help while you're there. You might when you're when you're done, when you're on the other side, when things do finally look up, when you can finally taste your coffee in the morning, or when you, you swallow know, your spittle. Yeah, when when you're able to <laughs> taste the strawberries and cream, as it were, then at that point the theological message can hit home. The who God is and why this is happening and, and the greater scope of things can kind of hit home, but here in the depths of despair, it really doesn't help at all it's it's just high-minded thoughts and ideas it's just and it's definitely it's definitely setting yourself above the other person so that first section we could just call the depths of despair or the death of senses taupe taupe yeah the color okay (laughs) explain you know just that that blah blandness that it's just there Right. It, there's not. There's nothing to it. It's just there. Right. Okay. I, I guess that's one way to explain it. Um, <laughs> I, I would just say that yeah, it's just going through the motions. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's no there's no hope anymore in his life. Yeah. Exactly. So the second stanza then is verses eight through thirteen, and we see in this stanza a repeat of what Job was saying back in chapter three. His despair. I just don't want to live anymore. Uh, I, I I wish I was cut off. I, I wish that I had my desire, that he would grant what I long for. I just want to be cut off, crush me, get rid of me, be done with me. Why put me through this? Yeah. Which is the question that everybody who goes through that sort of tragedy asks. And, they ask these questions. And that how much more can I possibly endure? Right. I'm only human. Yeah. I, I'm I'm flesh and blood. Uh, we see here kind of a um, a a flip to the psalmist, who says that God knows that we are only flesh and blood, that he he's numbered our days and he recognizes our frame and our form, and he's not going to give us too much. 
But when you're in the midst of it and you're experiencing it, you're like, this is too much, God. Don't you know? Am, am I, am I this great statue that you could just put all of this weight on top of me? Right. Am I, am I the superhero that can lift this, lift this burden and bear it and carry it? And, and the fact of the matter is, is that no, he's not. Uh, people like to say that God won't give you more than you can handle. That is an absolute lie. That is, that is an absolute lie. And that sets people up for complete despair when they are given more than they can handle. Right. And the truth of the matter is that God doesn't give us more than we can handle with his help. Right. And that's the key. That's the key is God often puts us through more than we can handle. But he goes through it with us. And we on ourselves, on our own, we cannot handle it. We will end up completely broken and and, and, sometimes, and shipwrecked. Quite frankly, that's the point. Right. Because we've built our foundation on the wrong thing. We've built it on what can I do? What am I capable of? And my own successes... And God says, no, I got to break that. I got to break all of that down and start from the ground back up because you're on the wrong thing. You're standing on the wrong foundation. Right. And that is more than we can handle. Also, as the psalmist says, he stores our tears in a bottle. Right. Uh, he, he he knows them. He He treasures them. They're precious to him. And then he builds us back up. And he builds us back up into people who are twice what we used to be beforehand. And that's really kind of the, the point of the whole book of Job, is this rebuilding process to making him twice as twice the man that he was in the beginning. And even more able to honor and praise God. Right. Right, because he recognizes that it is not his own righteousness that's done it. Right. It is not his works that have accomplished it. It is his faith that has accomplished it. It is his trust in God that has accomplished everything that he has. Faithfulness to the God that crushed him, but also rebuilt him. So this particular stanza we could call... I'm only human. Yeah, I'm only human. Uh, This is too much. Um, It's it's too heavy of a weight. So the next section, in my Bible it goes from 14 to 17. But in Rebecca's Bible it is broken up differently. So let's just do 14 through 23. Both of our Bibles have that kind of split out into two stanzas. It's the, the issue is, where do you break it? Uh, mine breaks after 17. Rebecca's breaks after 20. So there's like three verses on either side, um, depending on which translation you have. So we'll okay. deal with them together, and we'll take it from there. Okay. So so 14 through 17, it's it's talking about his friends. and And I think in a way, he's kind of addressing God with this. He's saying, because remember, friend doesn't mean my buddy. Right, right. We have to it keep means, remem- reminding it, ourselves that because our mentality of that word is so very shoehorned into one idea right. that we don't understand what it was meaning in this context. Right. So friend means someone in a client-patron relationship. Friend was simply a way of equalizing the two roles. It was a way of addressing each other to each other and to others. So that uh, people who were lower in society could be brought up to some sort of equivalent status with people who were who were higher and were lowering themselves to help. 
And in this process, they're kind of equalizing themselves out and coming to a, an even playing field. So uh, when he's talking about the friend in verse 14, I, I'm not so sure he's talking about Eliphaz. He, I think he may be talking about God. Hmm. You've, you've, you've withheld way. kindness from me, God. You're, you're like this treacherous friend. You've, you are, if you were my friend and you had done this to me, I would say that you had forsaken God. Say, say that again. I didn't catch it. So he's, he's going to God and he's kind of saying, look, if you were human and you had done something like this to me, if you had come and killed my children, I would say that you had forsaken God. I would say that you are a godless person. But when it's God himself doing it, how do I then accuse the Almighty? He's soft bringing up the idea that, hey, you're being treacherous with me. You're tormenting me. You're like a stream that gave water and was bountiful and flowed freely. And then it all dried up. Mm, And you're being sort of wishy-washy with me. I don't know who you are. I thought I had you figured out. I thought you were my friend, but now I'm seeing this other side of you that's not what I expected. Yeah, that's not I what should have been. There. I definitely didn't see that as him saying that to God. I definitely was reading this in my mind as him talking to Eliphaz because his friend was a good friend, and now that he's had trouble, the waters dried up if you will. Now but it he hasn't. now he's coming in and and it's now it's scorched and dried up in the heat. He now he's accusing and being See, I don't I don't think that that's it at all because his friend hasn't dried up. His friend came and sat with him for 7 days in utter silence. Mm. Shared his pain with him. And when he opened his mouth was it helpful? No, but it didn't mean that he his friend hated him or had turned on him. It meant that his friend was was unhelpful and yeah. not able to help in any way and possibly even made things worse by what he said. But I don't think he's accusing his friend of having dried up and turned against him and, and taken away all hope from his life. I think he's kind of... I think this entire thing is really talking to God. The, yeah, the entire passage. I see it that way. I just haven't yeah. seen it that way before. I think it speaks more to the idea of despair, a person in despair, to see him as speaking to God in this passage. Not that he's responding to Eliphaz, but that Eliphaz said his thing, and he's now wondering, well, maybe he's right. Yeah. And But I don't think I've done anything wrong, which means you're being treacherous to me right now. If my theology is correct, you, God, are being treacherous, and you are doing this for no reason. You're being that, that wadi that, that overflowed with water that gave life. All of a sudden, you've completely dried up on me. You are changing. And when you're in that absolute despair and agony of soul, that, at least when we've been there, that was kind of where we were at. Mm -hmm. God, I can't trust you. Yeah. I don't know who you are. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. I thought you were good, and, I and thought you were, my whole world right. just collapsed. And I don't know. You maybe you're not good. Yeah. Maybe you're not, and that's maybe. exactly where we were at. At least, at least, exactly where I was at. That was that well, was right. the words I used. God, I don't, 
I know you're real. I know you're God, but I don't think you're good. Right. Well, and I, I came from it from a very similar standpoint, but I went to the, so far as to say, well, maybe the idea of God was just simple wish fulfillment or, or wishing on people's parts that there was this guy out there who was making things make sense. And uh, the only way that they could cope with a world full of tragedy and pain was to invent this thing to to rely on. And that's kind of where I went, was to a place where I, I assigned or ascribed God to the human imagination. And because the way that it was being presented was similar to Eliphaz, mm-hmm. going through the pain of potential loss even, not not even real loss, but the potential loss, going through that pain put me in a place where I had to question, I had to question even the existence of God because what I was taught, what Eliphaz was saying, the theology that, that was being mm-hmm. used to try to support me in this, everything that I knew wasn't helping and it right. wasn't right and it wasn't working. Right. And I had to go back to the drawing board. Continuing on in uh, 18, uh, it's kind of talking about um, my life was on track. Uh, the caravan was was going, your caravan has a specific route, and now it's been derailed. Now I'm out in the right. wilderness, I'm off the caravan, and we're going to perish. Uh, and the people are looking for it, we're hoping for this caravan, and but it's never coming. Yeah, it's never they're, coming. They're, they're despairing because all of their hope. Was hitched to that caravan, and that caravan's not coming. Yeah, that ship has sailed, and now they're now they're completely disappointed because they were confident that it was coming, uh, and and it really speaks to the idea of the best laid plans of mice and men mm-hmm. completely failing. Yeah, when we it, know that one. When it comes down, <laughs> right? When it gets down to the the brass tacks, you can lay your plans all you want, and it's not gonna it's never gonna go the way that you think it is. Mm-mm. And Job, with his comfort and his ease, he had a picture of what his life was going to be for the rest of his life. And when tragedy struck, it derailed him, like the caravan going off into the desert, completely derailed. And now they're all dead and hope is being taken from him. And then he kind of, verses 22 through 23, we see this echo of the Psalms again. Okay. Uh, where he says, have I said, make me a gift, a uh, or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me. Uh, so that doesn't really echo the Psalms. But then, deliver me from the adversary's hands, or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless. These are lines that that David uses in the Psalms. Ah. Requests that he makes of God. In, That's interesting. As he is being pursued by his adversaries. By Saul specifically. Right. Or even or, or, Absalom. Yeah. But I think that in this context, he's using that clearly David and Job. There's some echoes throughout this mm-hmm. whole section, but they're, they're using almost the same words, but from very different perspectives. Right. For opposite effect. Right. There, there's this contrast going on between Job and the Psalms right here in this. And the, mm-hmm. the way that they're echoing the same, like you said, the same words, but the sentiment is completely and vastly separated from each other. So here he's saying, have I ever I've never made this asked for a bribe right. or have I ever asked for have I ever asked for you to rescue me from a a bad financial decision that I made? Right. Or 
I have to pay off some some bad guys? Have I ever asked you to help me pay off some bad guys? Right. Have I or, ever or done anything like that at all? When I got mugged in the street, did I come to you and say, God, please help me? No, no. I, I never came to you for that. So why are you now abandoning me? I haven't asked for anything from you. I haven't been over uh, need, overly needy with you, God. I see it more as a... Um, the whole friend dynamic where the patron client scenario, he's not saying, God, cover all of my stupid decisions and my wrong right. choices. Right. He's, he's saying, look, if I had, if I made a wrong choice, I took care of it myself. I didn't ask you to cover that. Right. I didn't put that on you. Right. I didn't come to you to fight all my battles. I came to you, you were my patron, you were my God, you were the one who I hitched myself to, and you gave me a gift, and I didn't come to you for anything more than that gift. I didn't come back and keep asking and begging and and being a general nuisance to you. Right. And we see in that a kind of an echo of ancient Near East thought about gods. Uh, right. They're, they're, they're capricious. They're fickle. They're fickle. Yes. They... they you don't ask too much or they might turn against you. Don't ask too little or they might not recognize you. There was always this balance that you had to have. And there was this fear that you had to have of if you offend them by doing the wrong thing in the wrong way. So at some point, at some time, if you don't beat them enough, if you don't, whatever, they're going to turn against you. And suddenly your crops don't come up or storms come through and rip everything up or mm-hmm. or an army rolls through and destroys your home or or all of these calamities might come upon you if you're just not. Not quite right with the gods. And in the agrarian society that they, that that whole mindset was steeped in, it's understandable for them to have that kind of a concept because right. their forms of worship were based on they didn't have any set rules. They didn't have any set standards. Right. They didn't know what their God wanted. Right. They just, well, I kinda guessed. maybe he wants this. Right. And, oh, and now this storm came up. I guess he didn't want that. Okay. Well, last year we gave him that and we had great crops. So maybe he's just fickle. And I can right. completely see where they're coming from as far as what they understood. Right. Well, right, because they were worshiping emptiness, as it right as it says in uh, I think it's Psalm two. They're they're meditating emptiness. Their gods are completely and utterly worthless. Right. So this particular section could be uh, almost bargaining with God, um, mm-hmm. or, or this accusation. Is, this is definitely bargaining. We've stepped into the bargaining uh, stage of grief, right? For sure, right. Uh, there, there's that that hint of accusation in Job's tone of God, you've done this to me. You're not being a good God. Um, but, even, but into, into 24 through 30 is definitely the bartering section where he's saying, you know, show me, right. Tell me what I did wrong. What did I do? Prove it to me. Yeah. What is it that I have done to make you hate me? So, if I've done something wrong, then teach me. I'll sit back. I'll listen. I'll learn from you. Mm-hmm. Just tell me what it is so I can fix it. Honest words are painful, but I'm willing to take the pain if you'll just tell me what I've done wrong. 
Right. He's trying to make sense of it because he's he himself, like I said, I think he he holds the same sort of theology that Eliphaz holds. Yeah, I think he does. I bad things. Right yeah, bad things come to those who do bad things, who right. deserve them. And because his theology is is based there, then when bad things came upon him, he's like, all right, I, I guess I did do wrong. I have to because look at my surroundings. Look at where I'm at. I obviously did something wrong. What did but I do I wrong? I can't find it. Right. I don't know I what don't it is. I don't know what it is. Right. So I don't even know what to repent of. So please teach me. Tell me. Yeah. Help me figure this out. And man, I've done that too. I have absolutely <laughs> that. done that. Got that right. God, what have I done wrong? I'm literally racking my brain. What is it? I can't find it. Why am I still here? Right, and that's what 28 through 30 is, is this idea of, I have looked and I can't find it. So so 24 through 27 is kind of like the, teach me. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I'm in the wrong because you're dealing with this me this way. So please, tell me what it is. Teach me. Show me. Reprove me. And, but then 28 through 30 is because I can't see it. I can't right. find it. I don't know what I did wrong. I'm he, here floundering. And he asks God to relent. Mm -hmm. He says, relent. Do not be unjust. Now it's not a soft jab. It's a full-on, you are being unjust, God. Yeah. Turn. Let no injustice be done. Yeah. He's, he's in a way, accusing God of acting unjustly towards him. And, mm -hmm. and frankly, in a way, he kind of was. Not if, that God is if, unjust. If, if if your theology is based on this idea that God rewards good deeds and punishes evil deeds. And that is all there is. Right. Right. Then God is if, acting in injustice to allow this to happen. If this was a matter of justice in the first place, right. then yes, this would be unjust. What he can't see and what we probably need to see in our own lives when when we go through these things, because this is a matter of when, not if. When we go through these things, we don't... Sure, look at yourself, see if you've done something wrong, but also go, okay, if I can't see it, either God will bring it to my mind and he will help me understand where I've been wrong and help me to repent, or maybe there's something bigger going on here, and I just don't know it yet. Right. Right. And there is something bigger going on. God is using Job to reveal his own nature to mankind. Job, and it's something that we still don't get. Right. Well, it's that question that Jesus was asked, is this, is this man blind because he did something wrong or his parents? Well, the answer is not is neither. He's blind so that God's glory can be revealed through him. Why Absolutely. Why did Job suffer this? Is it because he did something wrong or his children? Nothing. He, he was he's, This happened to him so that God's glory could be revealed through him, through his story, through his redemption, through his, through his restoration, through all of it. And we see this all throughout the Bible. These people go through these terrible tragedies and these hard times and these deserts and these wilderness experiences. And it... It's not necessarily anything they've ever done. It's not necessarily cause and effect. Right. 
but it's so that God's glory can be revealed through them, which is hard for the person going through it. It's very Especially difficult. Especially if they've been going through it for a while. Right. Like the, the woman with the 12-year issue of blood. She had right. been going through it for a while, had been completely alone. No man would stay married to a woman like that. Absolutely not. Not in the ancient Near East. And she couldn't go anywhere or right, do anything. Or do anything. She, she couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't. She couldn't worship. She couldn't. She couldn't go to the synagogue because no one would would allow her near. And her whole life. Her whole life was, was destitute. Yeah. yeah. And yet, her issue was so that Yeshua could be revealed to be a healer. So that God could be glorified through her problem. Mm -hmm. And she went through 12 years of problem to get to that point of God revealing his glory through her. So this, that section, if we were to title it, um, I think would be uh, something along the lines of um, search my heart. And if there's any unclean thing, yeah, search my heart. Uh, which yeah. is an echo of David. An echo of David. <laughs> I think this whole entire uh, two chapters, David echoes a lot right. of it. He, yeah. he picks and chooses. He puts them in different psalms. But there's a lot of psalms echoed throughout this whole passage. Right. All right. So starting in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, he gets back to the despair again. He, he's back at uh, describing how hopeless. Maybe hopelessness would be a better a better title for this one. Not despair, but just hopelessness. Mine labels it futility of days. Right. And and he talks about that, you know. Have you ever been there when you're lying in bed and you can't sleep and the night just seems to drag? Yes. Forever. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And then you wake up and you go through the day and it seems to disappear like you did nothing. Yes. Like, like it's just gone. And you're back in bed again. Awake. And unable to sleep, and it drags on forever. That's what Job describes in the midst of this stanza. Mm -hmm. He's describing this cycle of everything being flipped upside down. And David says the same thing. David says, I lie in bed and wait for dawn, and when dawn comes, all I can think of is waiting for night so I can sleep again. And it's Mm -hmm. He's describing this exact same right. thing. It's the same process. And it's a very common process for anybody who goes through any kind of great conflict in their lives. Mm -hmm. And not just even despair or trauma, but conflict can cause this to happen in a person. People on the cusp of war will experience this type of thing. The night before an interview will experience <laughs> this sort of thing. Oh, or my goodness. The night before starting a new job or any of those things that can go through this type of thing where you just all night long awake, tossing, wake up, turning. Wake up, check the clock. Oh, no, got to go back to sleep. No, not Wake quite. up, check the clock. No, it's not time yet. <laughs> or not even fall asleep. Right. But he's talking about this kind of upside-down experience here. Uh, you know, uh, man's service on earth, it's already hard enough. It, the days are like a hired hand. We, we have to slave away. But I, I'm like a slave who's working for nothing. I'm working for the shadows. I'm a hired hand who's holding his hand out, waiting for the wages, and nothing's being put in his hand. Yeah. That's, that's what Job is describing here um, in the first few verses. And then he says, the night drags on, and yet 
my day flies faster than the weaver's shuttle. Right. To come to an end without hope. To come to night again. Yep. But no hope. No hope found the next day and the next day and the next day. It's a series of endless days with nothing new, no new hope to be found in any of the successive days. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow weaves in its petty pace from day to day. I think that's how it goes, but I'm probably getting that yeah, wrong. You might be murdering that one. I probably am, but, oh, but well, it's Shakespeare. Yeah. So, it's you know, so it doesn't we matter. can murder it. It's fine. <laughs> All right. So then in verse 7 through 10, my life is like a ruach, like a wind, mm-hmm. is what he says. It's like a spirit. So that, that word there is my life is like a breath. It's not the, the vaporous smoke like Ecclesiastes. Okay. It, it's like the wind. It's like the the thing outside that you just don't see. It's also my eyes will not see goodness again. It's eyes will never see me anymore. Your eyes will be on me, but I will be no more. It's more like a ghost concept. Yeah, yeah. He, he, and a this is this is something very common for people concept. who go through despair: is to feel like you're not seen, yes. and you don't want to be seen, and you'll never, ever, ever again see anything good. Uh, yes, and it that was, absolutely. The there is no hope. There is no end to this infernal life that I'm living. Right. The, I I I'm not seen by anyone and I'm never going to be. There's never going to be light at the end of this of this tunnel. tunnel. Yeah. It was like I said last week when you're dealing with a person who's in despair, you have to remind them that they will smile again. And they will laugh again important. and that's and Job Job can't imagine smiling again he can't imagine ever laughing again or having happiness in his life again he has lost everything and if eliphaz was really there to help really all you can say is this sucks right but you will smile again there there the pain will never go away but it will dull and you will find joy again in your life. And don't make any promises on when that will be. Yeah. But that it, it will happen. It, it can happen. And that's really the only hope that a person who's in despair can, that's at this point in their grief journey, can really hear. And even that isn't super comfortable. It isn't super comforting. But it is the only promise that you can really make them. I think ghost might be a good title for that section or haunted. Haunted. Yeah. Haunted. In my mind, it's very similar to the futility now uh, of, of the beginning of chapter six where nothing, there's no taste, there's no light, there's no color, there's no life left. And here it's gone so far that he can't even be seen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, which brings us to the end of the chapter. This last stanza. It's uh, 10 verses, 11 through 21. But Job begins to open up, to really open up, <laughs> as if he wasn't opening up already. But he starts with, I'm not going to restrain myself. I'm not going to hold back my anguish. I'm not going to hold back my words. I will complain of my bitterness. I'm going to... 
speak about it now. And this, frankly, is one of the most healing things a person can do, is to begin to talk about their pain. A person who's going through grief, if they hold it in, if they never talk about it, it will fester and it will rot. A person who's going through grief needs to talk about it, even if it's just complaining, even if it's just, I have no hope, even if my life is despair and darkness, they need to talk about it. It's got to come out or it will will fester and then explode. Right. And that's one of the things that we see in the book of Jeremiah as well, also dealing with trauma. Uh, The book of Lamentations. It's this attempt to get the despair out, to to express it, to to make it real, to be able to put it on a page so you can see it in, in a physical form, which can help to process through it. One of the things that I have done personally when I'm going through a really difficult time is journaling. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, I never go back and read my journal because don't need to. every single time that I write in that journal, it's when I'm going through some stuff and I don't need to rehash it. But the, that's not the point of the journal. The journal is to get it out of me. Right. And I actually read a article on PTSD and the... The theory of the article was that the um, epidemic proportion of PTSD we are seeing in our world today is based primarily on the fact that we have made it wrong to talk about our stuff. Yeah. We've built up these walls, everything's fine, this this mentality that I have to look a certain way and I can never be broken. Right. That it's breaking us all. And that if we would just be real and be broken and allow that to be okay, yeah. that we would be able to process through our stuff and the PTSD would not be the epidemic level that it is. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's that idea that we have to hold up an image. Mm-hmm. We have to be something. Um, I was actually uh, doing a study on the armor of God recently mm-hmm. uh, for a video that's going to go on YouTube. But the belt of truth, uh, when you look into the word that's translated as truth there, it means without pretense. Uh, mm-hmm. It means without affectation. It means being honestly you, being truly you, just allowing yourself to be you, not having this uh, this persona that you have to be. Uh, one of our favorite bands is 21 Pilots, and they have an entire album that's about that called <laughs> Blurry Face, yeah. where Blurry Face is this person that he tries to be in front of people, and it's this fake person that, that kind of... Um, Puts on a mask yeah, and tries it, to be someone else. It's, it's the mask that the world sees that's not really him. And it, it's really profound mm-hmm. when we read, when we listened to that album and just really considered it. We recognized that, yeah, we, we put masks on our face and we, we, we don't let the world see us as we are. And when you're in grief, you cannot hold on to a mask. You have to let your mask go in front of someone. And you have to let yourself feel the pain. Right. 
But again, going back to, but there will be good days eventually. Even if, let's say, absolute worst case scenario, our good days are on the other side of eternity. There's still going to be good days again right, if right. you are in Christ. Right. Right. And that is something important to hold on to. But as Job goes through these last, this last little bit, he, he, he's questioning, look, I'm human. I'm nothing. Am I, am I some grand sea monster that you stare at me and that you guard me? I try to go to sleep. At least maybe I'll find comfort in my dreams, but no, then you terrify me with nightmares. Right. I, I would choose death over this. I my loathe soul, my life. My soul prefers strangulation. Right. I, I loathe my life. What is man that you set your sight on him? Why do you even care about us, God? Why is it that you care about us, that you look at us, that you visit us every morning and give us give us wakefulness, but then you test us every moment of that wakefulness? Uh, how long will you continue to look at me? Why, why do you keep... Why do you keep focusing on me? Go what? go deal with someone else. Let me alone until I swallow my spittle. It's like, can't I even just just swallow my own spit? Without you, right, without you staring at me and judging me for it? Or, and if I sin, what is it that I've done to you? I've sinned against other people. Why, why do you take such offense at my sins against people? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why don't you pardon my transgression? Why don't you take away my iniquity? Why are you punishing me? But no, no, I'm still here. I'm still lying on the earth. And you're still seeking me, but I'm I'm done. I'm about out. I'm gone. There's nothing left for you to, to torment. This is classic bargaining right here. This is... This is the first step of healing, is getting it out. Talking about it, just venting. Venting. Venting, venting is... Uh, we, I've done it where I've said, oh, well, I can't vent because if I do, then that's going to despair on whoever it is that I'm, I've got a problem with, or I, you know, I can't... I don't want to say something bad about someone so I'll just keep it all to myself or whatever and it's not healthy not it, it venting can legit turn into gossip there is a line that right. you can't cross right. if it's I'm venting in order to recruit you to be on my side so that we can both not like this person, that's gossip. That's a problem. But if you are literally just, this is what I'm going through and it's awful and help me just get it out, that's venting. Yeah. And that is not, I, I don't see that as a bad thing. I think... That is healthy and good. Right. So one of the things that everyone should do, they need to find a person they can be vulnerable with. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's a friend, whether it's a parent, someone 
that you can open up to about your crap, especially when you're going through. Don't wait till you've gone through trauma. Until, Don't until wait you're till you're until in you're grief. In it. Yeah, you've got to find, find that someone beforehand. First. But you also, I would suggest your spouse when you're both going through it and you're both right. on the same page. That's a great person to vent to. But when your spouse is the person you need to vent about, venting yeah. to your spouse is not a good thing. That's not so helpful. you need someone else as well. Right. Right. You you've got to have that person that you can open up to and be and just be real with. That you don't need the mask. Because frankly, the masks, the blurry face, it's useful. It's helpful. It's necessary. If we were truly ourselves in front of everybody, you're you're casting you're, your pearls before swine. You're allowing yourself to be well, right, but, so vulnerable that people will use everything as a weapon against you. That and because uh, we have different personas for different situations. We are at work. You have your work persona. You have your work mask. When you're in front of family, you have your family mask. Yeah. You've got to find that person that you don't need the mask in front of, mm-hmm. where you can just drop it and be, yeah, without without pretense, without judgment, without anything. Just be yourself. Finding that person is important, and so that's that's really the the I guess the recommendation for this this lesson is find that person that you can be real with. I, I wanted before we close to go back to. Verse 17 and 18, because he says, what is mankind that you magnify him, Mm, that you set your heart on him, that you visit him every morning and test him every moment. So I'm hearing echoes of Psalm 8 and Lamentations. Right. (laughs) You visit him every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Right. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right. Yes, these things are truth. God does set his heart on us. God does care for us. He does magnify us. Even lowly mankind, he does visit us every morning. And he is faithful. And even in the midst of this utter despair, he says truths. Right. Uh, But from the point of despair, it looks like a curse. That God would focus on him. It does. Which is, you know, the truth can be... A blessing or a curse, depending on where you're at. Sword, if you will. Right, right. Depending on where you're at, the truth can hurt you. It can destroy you, or it can build you up and make make you feel grand. It it is it is a double edged sword, and so much of what we read in the Bible speaks of that dividing line. Right. Depending on where you're at on the side of the line is going to determine how you see different situations. For example, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. It's going to be a day of weeping and gnashing and so on and so forth. Terrible things occurring. And yet it's going to be a day of rejoicing and gladness and happiness and restoration. 
It's going to be both. And the only difference is which side, which you're, side on. you're on. Yeah. The only difference here in this truth that God magnifies mankind is whether you're David in a good place feeling upwelling of praise for God, or if you're in this place of despair feeling like God's crushing you. Mm-hmm. The truth is still the same, but the the outcome of the meaning of it changes based on where you're at. And that is a profound truth that we can uh, we can actually look into Scripture and we can apply to all parts of our lives. Uh, you know, having a law is a good thing unless you've broken the law, and then suddenly it's a bad thing. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it is just a fact of life, and Job is recognizing that. And we see it because we have the, the benefit of the Psalms as well to compare mm-hmm. it with, which makes Job even that much more profound. That a truth of God can be a place of heart hurt, can be a place of despair when your mindset is despair. Right. And I think that that in and of itself is why approaching someone who is in the depths of it with theology, with truth that they can't here right now right is not beneficial right because they're in that place where it looks like a curse right everything you can tell them about god's love looks like a curse because they don't feel it in the moment they don't experience it and those memories of how god did treat them don't really translate to the current circumstances right it's it's so far in the past that it's hard to hold on to in the present. Right. With that, find yourself a friend, someone you can be real with, someone you can open up to. Uh, if you don't, when you get into this place, you'll either bury it or you'll be paying for therapy. <laughs> That's really all there is to it. Because therapy is just that, that person, person that you, that can, you be can be real, real and with. open and vulnerable with. As you do that, as you go through life, even in the midst of tragedy and despair, remember to seek life. Because there is a glimpse of life even in the depths of despair. So seek life. In all that you do. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.